Jermaine Brown is one of the best-known instructors on the campus of the University of Texas at Arlington. Her classes are small, they're not part of the regular curriculum, and they're not offered for credit. But the course she teaches has attracted a lot of attention because of the unique nature of the subject. Belly dancing. Although instructor Brown has no college degree and little formal training in dancing, her credentials are impressive. She's better known by her professional name, Chastity Fox. Her profession used to be striptease dancing. But a few months ago, she quit stripping because she said the job was no longer challenging. Instructor Jermaine Brown says this isn't obscene, this is art. Anybody who's ever seen me dance knows that I'm an artist, and I really believe uh, in teaching the dance as an art. Most women signed up for the course because they want to get in shape. They do it by learning hip rolls, shimmies, and something called the stomach flutter. At the end of six hours of instruction, the women get certificates of proficiency in belly dancing and a special gift from the instructor, jewels to put in their navels. Those who go home and perform for their husbands, have you had any uh, feedback on the, the results uh, of that? <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, they, a lot of them won't give me any details, but they tell me that everything's a lot better at home. In the 1960s and 70s, a belly dancing craze swept the United States. Audiences could enjoy live belly dancing performances in Middle Eastern restaurants and clubs. Viewers could watch belly dancers in hit movies like From Russia with Love or the popular TV show I Dream of Jeannie, a sitcom centered around a romantic relationship between a genie and her master. Belly dancing even appeared in unexpected venues, including Elvis Presley's 1968 comeback special. Thousands of American women also flocked to belly dancing classes. Many did so because they wanted to become slimmer and sexier. And at the urging of instructors like Chastity Fox, they performed titillating dances in the privacy of their bedrooms for their husbands or boyfriends. Some of these women went so far as to adopt Middle Eastern names and dress up in costumes. At first glance, the history of belly dancing appears to be a story of white, middle-class women appropriating Middle Eastern culture and styles to make themselves more exotic. But the story of belly dancing is much more complex. It's a story in which Middle Eastern and American artists and audiences shaped and reshaped artistic expressions, sexual performances, and cultural identities. The creativity and entrepreneurship of Middle Eastern immigrants is at the center of the belly dancing craze. In the 1960s and 70s, these immigrants successfully marketed their dances, their music, and even their identities to audiences worldwide. American audiences, in turn, learned from and imitated Middle Eastern dancers in a variety of ways, ranging from crude racial mimicry to careful study and emulation. Among the most accomplished of these Middle Eastern dancer entrepreneurs was Azul Turkbas. Turkbas was a Turkish model, film star, and dancer who immigrated to the United States in 1959. During the 1960s and 1970s, Turkbas performed in nightclubs across North America. As Americans clamored for belly dancing performances and classes, Azal Turkbas joined other belly dancers who marketed belly dancing as a tool to help women stay fit and to keep their relationship sexually exciting. Turkbas built a small commercial empire. She released several belly dancing records with titles like 
how to belly dance for your husband, and how to make your husband a sultan. These records came with booklets that offered women a crash course on belly dancing. Turkbus also sold mail-order belly dancing paraphernalia, like symbols and costumes. Belly dancers like Turkbus capitalized on Americans' long-standing fascination of the Middle East. They combined this erotic fascination with the messages of a booming American fitness culture, which told women that it was their jobs to stay thin and attractive. Many American women came to view belly dancing as providing them with a path to exotic identities, better bodies, and better sex lives. I'm Gillian Frank. And I'm Lauren Gutterman. Welcome to Sexing History. Americans have been fascinated with belly dancing for a long time. In the late 19th century, Americans began to see belly dancing spectacles in various public entertainment venues, at World's Fairs and amusement parks, on vaudeville and burlesque stages, and in some of the earliest films ever made. Their performances were called the Hoochie Coochie, or Oriental Dance. The dancers' movements, as well as their bare arms, midriffs, and legs, created a sensation even as they scandalized some American audiences who viewed such displays as indecent. In the 1950s, changes to American immigration law made it easier for people from the Middle East to move to the U.S. and become citizens. Newly arrived Middle Eastern immigrants quickly established restaurants and clubs across the nation. These spaces featured Middle Eastern cuisine, live music and belly dancing, and attracted diverse audiences. American-born audiences already had a well-developed and eroticized fascination with the Middle East and with belly dance, and immigrants quickly grasped the ways Americans viewed Middle Eastern culture. Nightclub owners and restaurateurs played up exoticized ideas of the Middle East to bring patrons to their doors. Starting in the 1950s, Syrian, Lebanese, Turkish, and Egyptian immigrants opened restaurants and clubs that made exotic sensuality part of the place's allure. In 1959, Lebanese-American Lou Shelaby opened the Fez, the first Middle Eastern club in Los Angeles. Celebrities including Lee Marvin, Jane Mansfield, and Danny Thomas frequented Shalabi's club. There, they would listen to Arabic music, enjoy belly dancing performances, and dine on Middle Eastern cuisine. Here's Roxanne Shelaby, Lou Shelaby's daughter, describing the Fez. It was the only place at that time that had the full experience of Lebanese food, Arabic music, and Arabic dancing. The restaurant was actually two floors, and downstairs was like the main fine dining area, so it was chairs and tables. And there was a raised stage, so the musicians and the dancer would perform an actual show for the audience. And then there was an upstairs, which was called the Sinbad Room. And that was a more authentic, like, you know, sitting on cushions on the floor um, and a smaller, more intimate space where you were really up close and personal with the dancer and the musicians. It became naturally sort of a cultural meeting point for Arabs of across the Middle East who had resettled in the Los Angeles area. And because there were no other places, you know, you had North Africans, you had Egyptians, you had Syrian Lebanese and people from all over the Levant, as well as, you know, Arabia, Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf. And then you had Americans. And this is the thing that really is interesting to me 
in that, you know, American society was very interested in this new culture, was very, uh, not new culture, but new to them culture that was very mysterious and exotic. And they seemed to be more open-minded in those days. And families, and that's the difference. Like, when you think of a nightclub, you think of partying and drugs and all that kind of stuff. My dad's clubs were always family-oriented because it was more about connecting with their culture rather than like the nightclub as we think of it. Even as they catered to American tastes, nightclubs like the Fez became important gathering spots for Americans of Middle Eastern descent. In larger cities or smaller towns, Middle Eastern restaurants and clubs allowed Middle Eastern immigrants to share their cuisine and traditions with each other and with other Americans from a variety of backgrounds. Right here on Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood has its own Casbah. As we enter the Seventh Vale, you feel as if you're thousands of miles away, back into the ancient times of the Middle East. The scent of exotic foods and the presence of belly dancers put you right into the Arabian Nights. This is Layla, the star of the show and also the owner of the club. And this is Dancing. This intriguing atmosphere right in the middle of Hollywood attracts many of its stars who come to watch and even participate. The band is authentically Middle Eastern. The string instrument is from ancient Persia and it's called a sanctuary. The drum is called a dumbbag. But you didn't think I knew that. The musicians are Manoush from Iran and Hamil from Iraq. By the 1960s, Belly dancing had become a pop culture phenomena and was thriving in nightclubs in the United States. Belly dancers were featured on film, on television, and in live shows that toured the continent. For many Americans, belly dancing had become one facet of a more diverse and more permissive popular culture. As belly dancing boomed in the United States, it was becoming increasingly controversial in parts of the Middle East. After World War II, territories across the Middle East and North Africa asserted political independence from European colonizers. In these newly independent countries, questions of what counted as authentic culture became central to nationalist projects. Middle Eastern political leaders sought to revive, and in many cases to invent, indigenous and authentic cultural expressions that set them apart from the culture of European colonizers. In countries like Egypt and Lebanon, belly dancing became an important site for these anti-colonial ideas to play out. For some Egyptian and Lebanese politicians, belly dancing suggested the cultural denigration that was colonialism's legacy. These critics were concerned that sexualized belly dancing was proliferating in clubs that catered to Western tourists. They accused tourists and belly dancers of corrupting their country's cherished values. In Egypt, they have a national problem, which has everyone tossing and turning. Cairo's belly dancers are tossing their tummies while everyone is turning his head to watch. A special demonstration of agitated abdomens is held to determine whether or not Egypt's 2,000 stomach soloists will be allowed to return to their traditional scanty costumes. The final decision can be no snap judgment. That's why the city censor arranged this performance. The girls claim their naval maneuvers reveal less than the local beach. Anyone for a swim? In order to preserve what it called authentic oriental traditions, 
the Egyptian government began regulating how belly dancers could dress and where they could dance. In the 1950s, Egyptian officials instructed dancers to cover their navels. By 1963, the chief censor in Egypt issued an edict that stipulated no more hip swinging, no more belly or bosom shaking, no more lying down on the floor and executing quivering or shivering motions, no more suggestive movement. By 1967, the Egyptian government announced that belly dancers would have to attend state-endorsed schools where they would, according to a government memo, cleanse and polish their movements of any gesticulations having as their primary target to arouse sexual excitement of spectators. Instead, they would learn respectable dance moves that reflected national values. According to coverage in the Associated Press, only brunettes would be admitted to these state-sponsored schools because brunettes were, quote, more representative of the Orient than blondes. The fight over belly dancing was part of a wider effort to purify and police Egyptian culture, and sexuality became the dividing line over what counted as authentically Egyptian. As the chief censor in Egypt noted, the aim of reform is to keep this Oriental art in consistence with public morality. The minister even found support from some professional belly dancers because he promised to elevate the artistic aspects of the dance and push out what he called the shameful intruders who do nothing more than expose their body charms and call themselves oriental dancers. Belly dancers in the United States also wrestled with the sexual meanings of their craft. Some American-based belly dancers sought to destigmatize belly dancing by desexualizing it. A number of belly dancers that we interviewed were upset that audiences associated them with strippers and with burlesque dancers. Here's Roxanne talking about sexuality and belly dancing. I wish that the general public would understand that belly dancing is not about a woman being scantily clad and trying to, dis to seduce a man. I really would love for them to understand that it's a cultural dance. It is a dance of people in like throughout the Middle East, although maybe they have specific folklore styles. If you're putting on a certain music that leads to belly dancing anywhere in the Middle East, the woman is gonna stand up and tie something around her hips and do those movements that we relate to or understand as being belly dancing. And some of the men for fun. Here's Michelle. I am Michelle Crown. I'm a multi-award-winning professional belly dance performer and instructor in the Sacramento, California area. It is a complex subject, the sexual nature of belly dancing, in that there's a pretty big dichotomy between Western belly dance and how sexuality is viewed here and Middle Eastern, North African, Turkish regions and how it's viewed there in that in the West, Belly dance is very much, especially these days, kind of viewed as a way for women to explore and take pride in their sensuality, to kind of come back to themselves. You'll often hear the words empowered sensuality tossed around in American belly dance. And that's great. And I think, and that is, it does that absolutely, but it does contrast with the Middle East where belly dance is still very much frowned upon and it's very much considered sex work and it's legitimized by the government in that you have a license to belly dance but that license also says you're a prostitute and so sensual explore my sexuality art form and 
dancers in the East who are dealing with some very serious stereotypes that can be dangerous or difficult for them. Um, the classic line is, everybody wants a belly dancer at their wedding, but nobody wants their son to marry a belly dancer. At the same time, a number of belly dancers shrewdly linked belly dancing with exotic sexuality. Belly dancers like Azal Turkbus fell into this camp. Her bra tops barely covered her substantial chest. Her facial expressions emphasized the sexual meanings of her movements, and she often invited male audience members to join her on stage in erotic scenarios. Turkbus also performed at Playboy clubs in the United States and Canada, solidifying the association between belly dancers, Playboy bunnies, and strippers. The sex appeal of belly dance also became a gimmick for some performers. Helen of Lajos, an accomplished performer and Greek-American, developed a nightclub routine in which she lay on the ground and flipped coins on her abdomen using only her stomach muscles. In doing so, she invited audience members to take a close and prolonged look at her wriggling, half-naked body on the floor. The feet, which she performed on several television shows, even earned her a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for unique abdominal dexterity. Elena Vlachos, one of America's leading interpreters of the belly dance. Like the artist she is, Helena realizes that if an art is to survive, it must adapt and change. And change here is the operative word. Helena, welcome. Hi, how are you? Very well indeed. And the change is right here, nine quarters. Will you just explain what you and you alone can do with them? Okay, the quarters placed on the belly, I will be able to turn them over twice up, then twice down. One at a time, twice up each, and then every other one down. When did you discover you could do this? Many, many years ago when I was dancing, actually somebody placed, it started with a dollar bill on my belly, and as I was rolling my stomach, it turned over. Then I thought to do the coins because it was easier to lie on the stomach flat. And then I worked my way up from one and then two. Then I discovered I could do one at a time. Then I just added on as my muscles got accustomed to handling the coins. Two dollars and 25 cents coming up, rolling over and coming back again. Good luck. Other performers, like Turkish-born belly dancer Naila Bahar, who is known by her stage name, Princess Naila, appealed to housewives interested in improving their bodies and spicing up their sex lives. In 1970, Princess Naila published an instructional book called Exotic Exercises. Exotic Exercises included chapters on sexoticism, and how to be number one in the harem. The exotic woman, Princess Naila explained, was the opposite of what she called the shabby housewife. Naila's book includes pictures of her in a full-length black lace bodysuit and black patent heels as she demonstrates her fitness routines. Naila, in other words, embodied for and promised her audience fitness and sex appeal. Like Princess Naila, Ozel Turkbas marketed Middle Eastern eroticism to American-born women and their husbands. In the early 1970s, she released record albums of belly dancing music, accompanied by booklets with detailed instructions for women about how to perform a belly dance for their husbands or boyfriends. The first album, How to Make Your Husband a Sultan, came out in 1972. She released How to Belly Dance for Your Sultan the following year. The liner notes for Turkbas's first album explained that with her help, many American women were able to learn, simply and painlessly, how to give a seductive performance. Importantly, Turkbas emphasized that belly dancing was both sexual and respectable. 
liberating, but not lewd. According to her book, The Belly Dancer and You, belly dancing has literally rescued many, many women from lives of seemingly permanent unhappiness because it's dignified sexuality. Anyone can get into it without feeling tawdry. In other words, belly dancing offered women a way to embody and enjoy their sexuality without sacrificing their respectability. Or, to put it more crudely, it could teach them to be sexy without being slutty. Turkbas, like other immigrant belly dancers, suggested that in order to achieve a more sensual and erotic self, women could adopt a Middle Eastern persona. In her book, The Belly Dancer and You, she invited her non-Middle Eastern students to adopt a new name. She wrote, You're all set to dance, right? Then don't face your audience as Betty Sue Pruitt or Virginia. You'll also find that your new name will help you find an entirely new dancer's identity. Soon, you'll be wearing like the Adelaide or Camille you were always meant to be. What followed was a three-page alphabetical list of Middle Eastern names for her audience to choose from. Here's Roxanne Chelaby discussing the practice of taking on a Middle Eastern name. Um, often they take on names that are not actually names. They're like a word they heard in Arabic and they think it sounds nice, so they took it on as a name. Or I think it's not so much that they take on a name, it's that like how much, how much work did you put into knowing the name that you took on? And now there's so many dancers that, I mean, before we knew two Jamilas and we knew, you know, a Suhaila and you knew a Bahia, and we kind of have used up all the Arabic names. So now dancers have a first name and a last name that they take on. And again, not always culturally appropriate. Here's Michelle. Stage names are pretty common throughout the belly dancing world, throughout the artistic world in general. A lot of different genres use stage names. Um, different reasons, sometimes for to have that kind of alter ego. Maybe you want to separate your work and your dance life. In Throughout the um, belly dance really became popular in America. 19, late 1960s, early 70s, when we had a big influx of Middle Eastern immigrants. And in the old days, you would be gifted a name by your teacher or by a restaurant owner or a musician would dub you a Middle Eastern name. Um, but that just never felt authentic to me. I was called Amara. And I just, people were kind of like, Amara, huh? That's your name. <laughs> like, well, it just never felt very real to me and almost a little bit appropriative to just kind of pick a Middle Eastern name because it's exotic and it didn't make a lot of sense. So I figured if belly dance is who I am and what I want to do with my life, then I decided to do it as Michelle Crown. Belly dancing, like fitness culture more broadly, promised participants physical and spiritual transformation, a better and sexier body. But belly dancing also offered Americans a new cultural and sexual identity inspired by Middle Eastern traditions. In the practice of belly dance then, questions of cultural authenticity, cultural appropriation, sexual performance, fitness, art, and profit all intermingled with each other. Even as they marketed a Middle Eastern identity to American audiences, Middle Eastern immigrants saw themselves as cultural ambassadors, exposing new audiences to Middle Eastern art, music, and language while celebrating their heritage. Similarly, many non-Middle Eastern belly dancers who became fans and practitioners of belly dance in the late 60s and 70s believed they were preserving and celebrating Middle Eastern traditions. 
Many of these dancers wrestled with hard questions about cultural appropriation and the ways their work might further Middle Eastern stereotypes. Here's Roxanne. My current passion is, and that is connecting the dancers in the belly dance community with the culture. Now, we live in a time where, you know, you can go to the supermarket and buy, hum like the hummus is next to the peanut butter. And it's just as common a food as peanut butter is. People don't know it's attached to any culture for the most part. They just know it tastes good. So belly dancing kind of has gone the same way. I mean, we have dancers in the belly dance community who dance to American music, who have, like, they couldn't locate the Middle East on a map if you asked them. You know, they are American dancers kind of doing what they think is like the thousand and one nights idea of belly dancing. So I've created a program and I call it the Middle Eastern Dance Lab where I take dancers on trips to events in the Arabic community. I've had some great success and dancers seem to be really interested in learning about the culture and having that connection. By the early 1980s, the belly dancing craze had mostly faded in the United States. As Americans moved on to other fitness fads that promised better bodies and coupled sweat with sex, many professional belly dancers also moved on to other things. Still, a number of professional belly dancers continue to dance and to teach their craft in studios across the country. The widespread fascination with belly dancing never disappeared from American culture and to this day remains a fixture in women's fitness and self-help cultures. You can still take belly dancing classes, you can purchase Middle Eastern themed costumes online, and you can stream instructional videos with titles like Love Potion, The Belly Dance Workout, and Sensual Goddess, Belly Dance for Total Beginners. The fact that Middle Eastern images remain so powerful in American understandings of sexual pleasure and sexual exoticism demonstrates how profoundly Orientalism, the push and pull of markets, and immigration from the Middle East have all shaped the history of sexuality in the United States. At the same time, the persistent marketing of the Middle East and of belly dancing as pathways to physical and sexual transformation reveals another through line from the 1960s to our present, a demand that women work out and do the hard work of making themselves and their relationships sexy and exciting. Sexing History is written and produced by Gillian Frank and me, Lauren Gutterman. Our senior producer is Sunia Liganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producers are Chris Babbitts, Isabel Mikado, and Mallory Zamansky. Our intern is Julian Harbaugh. Thank you to Kanina, Michelle Crown, Roberta Daugherty, Roxanne Chelaby, and Barbara Siegel for sharing their stories with our senior producer, Sunia Lee Ganawi. We are indebted to research by Anne Rasmussen, Anthony Shea, and Barbara Sellers-Young, whose scholarship informed this episode. To learn more about the research and to see our liner notes for this episode and all our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com. Sexing History is made possible with generous funding from Alan Zwickler of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation. Created in honor of the journalist, filmmaker, 
poet and gay activist Phil Zwickler, the foundation seeks to promote human rights, education, health, and the arts, specifically with respect to the gay and lesbian community, and generally with regard to those individuals and groups who need assistance to survive and be heard. Visit them at pzfoundation.org. We're also grateful for the support of the University of Delaware College of Arts and Sciences program for undergraduate summer research. Sex and History is also supported by funding from the Humanities Media Project in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. The Humanities Media Project aims to tell human stories and invite critical conversations that educate, inspire, and connect communities. They believe that the humanities play a crucial role in maintaining a healthy democratic society. Sexing History is grateful for a grant from the Program in American Studies and the Americas Center, Centro de las Americas, at University of Virginia. The Americas Center promotes the interdisciplinary study of the arts, cultures, histories, and societies of the Americas. If you're enjoying our show, you can help new listeners find us. Please review us on Apple Music and share links to our episode on social media. To stay up to date on all things Sexing History, or to send us a note, visit us on our website, www.sexinghistory.com. From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening. <laughs>